Okay, so uh, I'm real excited to talk with you today and God willing the next four or five weeks. Orthodox ecclesial music. Ecclesial means of the church. So when we talk about Orthodox church music, we like to use the word ecclesial because that is the academic term for of the church. So Orthodox ecclesial music, a guide through the Byzantine and Slavic traditions. So before we start talking about where our music came from, where our hymns came from, we first want to go over the basics. Why we even use music in the church. So firstly, we use music in the church because it's elevating. It's uplifting. It's transcending. <laughs> music, I think, is uh, taking aside here. This is my personal belief. But I think in uh, orthodoxy, we talk a lot about the mysteries. And mystery meaning that God is working through us. God is working uh, through the church. And I think music can be considered a mystery because I think through it, we offer what we have, we offer our song, we offer our talents, we offer our, uh, all the work that we put in, in learning this music, we offer this all to God. We offer as priests because we love the idea, I think it's beautiful that we're all priests. We all have a priestly function to offer our life to God, to offer what we do on earth and offer it to God. So music is a way for us to offer ourselves to God through uh, either our talents and through uh, our worship. Whether we have a good voice or not, we're offering ourselves to God. So in elevating, uplifting, transcending, transcending being that mystery that we just talked about, it illuminates and it heightens the significance of texts. Of course, we know that after reading text on text on text, it can start to get, things need to be highlighted in the church and things need to be proclaimed with joy and enthusiasm and with uh, joy, with joy. And so music, when we go up to that high note and we hit that note where we talk about heaven is the joy of the resurrection, the joy of the kingdom. And also, we go low, we talk about the earth, and we talk about suffering and our struggle. We're talking about the lower, the more uglier side of things in life. And so it illumines and illuminates and heightens it so that we, not to just feel that emotion, but so that we can pray and understanding the words and understanding what the hymns are trying to get us to pray about. So it helps us not to just feel this emotion, but to go even further and to, to offer it to God, to really to talk to God. Because as you talk to a friend, you don't just talk to a friend and very monotoned and you, you, you talk to your friend, oh my gosh, you won't believe what happened to me today. And so music helps us do this too. It helps us to emphasize the meaning of things as the next line says. And it unites us. It unites us as one voice, as one body, as one church, offer the hymns to God, a reflection of the heavenly worship. Together with the angels, together with the saints, as one body, we reflect 
what the kingdom of heaven is all about. We reflect that worship that the prophet Isaiah has a vision of when the angels are surrounding God and singing, Holy, 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 Lord of Sabaoth, that same hymn that we sing in the liturgy, we get that from what Isaiah saw in heaven. And right before the great entrance, we sing, uh, let us represent the cherubim. And my, uh, let us who miss thee represent the cherubim and sing the thrice holy hymn. So my professor would often say that the Greek word the way we translate it to represent probably is not the best way. It's kind of like participate with, join in with the cherubim. So we are, we say the, uh, we say that the liturgy is uh, like the kingdom of heaven. And in that way, we together with the angels are in that heavenly kingdom praising and glorifying God. So music helps us to do that, to unite us with the angels to become what we were called to be, which is to be living the life of the kingdom, which we are doing as we sing and we praise God. So uh, this is the, the, from the book of Revelation. Um, uh, I'll, just, I'll just read it really, really quickly because it's really long. Uh, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, singing, Worthy art thou, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and by thy will they existed and were created. So that is kind of the model of our, of our worship and of our uh, ecclesial music. I, I don't know if this is grammatically correct, but not the reasons why we use music in church. And so, of course, we know music is not entertainment, and that is always a temptation uh, to think of music as entertainment or as uh, something that is emotion producing and to you know, put us in this other worldly mindset. And to just stay on purely the level of emotions is not what our music is all about. So Christ is always the focus. Christ is always the focus of uh, our liturgical music. And uh, it, it's, I, I don't know how to say it other than it's a struggle, and it's a constant struggle for all, I think, who sing and who participate in the, even for listeners, to just be entertained. And what we'll learn a little more about the early church is that it was participatory. So even all those that listening, they, part, they still participated. They still participated, and it wasn't something that was on the level of the sentence, senses. It was, it was something that was active, and it was praising God. It was something that they did with their whole heart, with their whole mind, with their whole soul, and it was not on the level of just entertainment. So that's always a temptation, but we want to make sure that even though it does kind of we, emotion, there's definitely emotion involved there, but we don't let it just stay on that level of emotion. We use it to, to pray and to, to 
throw our souls and throw our hearts and our cares and our, uh, our joy to God. God's always the focus. Okay. And, of course, not a performance, not Elvis up there, not a show. Church is not a theater, although someone did just come to our church the other day from outside and try to convince us that it was something, or talk to us about how our liturgy was like a theater, but that is not what it is. Um, there were really, in the ancient church, no solos. There were really not many times where someone would just solo on their own. So probably because it was a big temptation, of, even back then and now. And what, like we were saying before, music kind of helps us focus ourselves and focus that emotion and focus kind of all that's going on in our life and giving glory to God, giving thanksgiving to God, intercession to God. And it's a way for us to be with God, to communicate with God. So that's St. Basil the Great. Uh, that's, that's just an awesome quote. Okay, so I called it in this presentation ecclesial music. Back in the day, they would have called this saltic art. And all the great academics of Byzantine music would uh, I'm not huge on this, but they would always say, you shouldn't call it Byzantine music. They, weren't, they didn't call themselves Byzantines, and so we shouldn't call it Byzantine music. Anyway, I'm just going to say that because the person who taught me Byzantine chant would probably slap me if I didn't say that. So <laughs> having said that, they called it Celtic art. And also, all the music did not come from the Byzantine Empire. Much of it came from the East and um, uh, from, yeah, like that Middle Eastern kind of a sound. So unfortunately, we don't have any early manuscripts, so we don't know exactly what they were singing and how they were singing, because they were probably destroyed in maybe during iconoclasm, because there probably would have been images on the manuscripts. So a lot of them were, or we have no early manuscripts. I believe it's the ninth century that we have. That's the earliest manuscripts that we have. But we do know that it was strictly vocal as Deacon James was saying, because instrumental music was associated with uh, the pagans. And also, as Deacon James was saying, when we sing and we are singing words, and the instruments cannot sing words. So uh, also, they thought that it excited the senses too much. And so we, they were always fighting that temptation for it to be entertainment. So it was only sung, so we only sung with the voice. Um, the background of the services came from the Jewish ceremonies, so uh, like the lighting of the lamps and the incense and the reciting of the psalms, all that came from Jewish ceremony, yes. I'm not 100% sure, Father Philip, I don't know if you know, what the scholars do say, though, is that there wasn't that much singing going on in the Jewish services at that time. And there probably wasn't that much singing going on in the early church. That is what a lot of the scholarship says. And so I don't know to answer your question completely, but the scholars are more inclined to saying there wasn't that much singing. So, OK. So we get a little insight of what was going on in the early church from uh, the epistles and from Tertullian, also St. Ignatius of Antioch. So 
Okay, so we see singing spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord, trusting one another in psalms and hymns. So this probably not so much a reflection of the communal worship, but this is kind of probably more of a reflection of day-to-day -day life, how we live out every day. Okay, so that's from Chotolian. Um So you see the lighting of the lamps um, and singing praise to the Lord in song as he is able. From the Holy Scripture, which is probably the Psalms, um, or from his heart. Not exactly sure what that last part would look like. Um, but so they were singing together, according to Tertullian. Again, everything is focused on this unity, this oneness, this coming together as one body, which is probably so, I could just see it being so important being in the pagan world and being amidst all the craziness that's going around them that they came together with one body and one voice and you know, they proclaimed, you know, blessed is the kingdom, reminding that life is about the kingdom. And it was just this unity that they had each other, that they were united and that life was not something that was just so crazy and hectic and there was no hope, there was hope, there was unity. And they had each other and they had, were united in God and they were going, they were um, sojourners whose true citizenship is, is the kingdom, is heaven. Again, <laughs> just such a focus on oneness and, and unity. Um, okay, so early prayer in liturgy. So there is good evidence that they worshiped on Sundays. Kiriaki Himera, meaning the, actually, does anyone know what that means? The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. In homes and in churches. Um, my professor would often tell me that they probably didn't actually serve the liturgy on the tombs of the martyrs. That was probably something different. So I don't know. That's Professor John Meyendorf at St. Vladimir Seminary. So... That's what he would tell me. So it was in the homes and in the churches. And of course, this, or not of course, but this picture is Dura Europas, which is in 232, was a house converted uh, into a church. And again, it's a big area for gathering. And there's also living quarters for clergy. But it was a big area for gathering because the, one of the most important aspects was that we come together as one and we're united. And there's a big area for us to be together. And later formed the basilica you know, after Constantine, after Christianity became, was allowed in, in uh, the Byzantine Empire, basilicas formed, which were modeled after kind of big assemblies for large people, big assemblies for marketplaces, um, big assemblies where everyone could come together and uh, praise God, which is a different focus than uh, kind of what the Jews were doing in the temple. So it wasn't just a special place for the deity to dwell because, of course, we say you are the temple of the, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it was just a different focus. It was on uh, unity and the gathering. So um, we have from St. Justin Martyr, about 150, um, he writes in his apology about uh, what the liturgy would have looked like at the time. So the focus was on the meal and 
unity. It began with a greeting, and there was some readings from uh, the scripture, preaching, prayers, the kiss of peace, and the transfer of gifts, anaphora, which means offering. And the anaphora is uh, the part of our service where uh, the priest uh, goes through kind of the salvation history and uh, we remember all that God has done for us and uh, we give thanks to God and um, that would have ended with a communal amen and then the breaking of the bread and distributing it and then there would have been a, a collection for the poor so that was kind of a quick rundown I want to I'll read to you a little bit of what he actually has to say here I think it's kind of cool On the day named after the sun, all who live in the city or countryside assemble. The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read for as long as time allows. When the lecture has finished, the president addresses us and exhorts us to imitate the splendid things we have heard. Then we all stand and pray. As we said earlier, when we have finished praying, bread, wine, and water are brought up. The president then prays and gives thanks according to his ability, and the people give their assent with an amen. Next, the gifts over which the thanking has been spoken, th thanksgiving has been spoken, are distributed, and everyone shares in them, while they are also sent via the deacons to the absent brethren. The wealthy who are willing make contributions as he pleases, and the collection is deposited with the president, who aids orphans and widows. Those who are in want because of sickness or some other reason, those in prison and visiting strangers, in short, he takes care of all in need. It is on Sunday that we all assemble, because Sunday is the first day, the day on which God transformed darkness and matter and created the world, and the day on which Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. He was crucified on the eve of Saturn's day, and on the day after, that is, on the day of the sun, he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them what we have now offered for your examination. So that is from the Apology of Justin Martyr. So that's a little insight of what they did uh, about the second century. Um, I'll also read, I think this is really cool, sorry, one more tidbit from what he talks about communion. This food we call Eucharist, and no one may share it unless he believes that our teaching is true and has been cleansed in the bath of forgiveness for sin and of rebirth and lives as Christ taught. For we do not receive these things as if they were ordinary food and drink, but just as Jesus Christ our Savior was made flesh through the word of God and took on flesh and blood for our salvation, so too we have been taught through the word of prayer that comes from him, the food over which the Eucharist has been spoken becomes the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus in order to nourish and transform our flesh and blood. For in the memoirs of which the apostles composed in which we call gospels, they have told us that they were commissioned thus, Jesus took bread and having given thanks said, do this in memory of me, this is my body. And in a like manner, he took the cup and having given thanks said, this is my blood. And he gave these to the apostles alone. So all that from Justin Martyr in about 150. So pretty cool. And as time goes on, the anaphora gradually develops. Talk more about Thanksgiving for creation, Thanksgiving for our redemption. In the Epiclesis, which is the invocation of the Holy Spirit, when the priest says, uh, "Make this precious body, uh, make precious bread, the blood of thy, uh, the body of thy Christ," and same for the blood. So, 
having said all that, in the early church, there still was not very much singing. However, this all changed in the fourth century. Uh, anyone have any guesses? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. The. So when Constantine uh, had the vision in the sky and Christianity became uh, legal to practice. That's a good point. I, I've never thought of it like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I could be. They, yeah. Uh, actually, before I go on, I'll say a couple more things about the early worship that I didn't mention. One was that they did do the kiss of peace. Uh, from the really from the very beginning, and um, oh, actually it's later. So, kiss of peace from the very beginning, which uh, I guess comes from a pagan tradition of one of initiation. So we kind of take that and Christianize it, and and we greet each other with uh, a kiss of peace, which was from the very beginning. Also, they worship towards the east, um, pretty much from the beginning. And because where Christ ascended, where he's coming. And also, in pagan worship, they had a big focus on the sun. So the doors were always to the east, and they opened so that the sun would come in. So, we, so they always worship towards the east. Um, yeah, I think that's it. OK, so yeah, I missed that before. So probably covered that. OK, so fourth century produced a change. So Christianity was legalized, and we see that the emperor is Christian. And so when that happens, um, you know, Christianity kind of becomes uh, everything is kind of taken on to a larger scale. We have big cathedrals that are being built. We need amplification of liturgical material, and there's the influence of the imperial court ritual. Um, so Christianity kind of becomes a part of the public office. So chanting, in turn, becomes more of a, a special liturgical function. And we see two forms of chanting that rise up early on. So one is antiphonal. And I believe we used to kind of do something like this when we had uh, paraclesis, where one choir would be on the right, one would be on the left. And it's kind of beautiful in that these choir, our choirs are responding to each other. and um, we hear this, mel the melodies going back and forth and filling the church. A question about chanting. My only experience with chanting is was in church. So since it just became a part of the liturgical function at that time, was chanting used in theater or in court or? Before? That's a good question. I don't know. 
I, I, I know the chant came from kind of that early, uh, those early centuries, the musical, um, the melodies that were kind of going on then. Where those happened, I don't know exactly. Yeah, Ann? Is it from the Jewish tradition? Because I know they have cantors in yeah. Yeah, some of it definitely came from the Jewish tradition. Well, there might also have been in like Greek drama and Roman drama, of course, in the tragedies and comedies and stuff, who would, you know, sort of interject in the, in the middle of the play or whatever, with, you know, a, a, a small group, you know, singing, you know, certain phrases, you know, reflecting on what was going on in the, in the play or the drama. Yep. Yeah. Sounds good to me. That's. Sorry, so there's some of this early stuff is it's hard to kind of piece it together. Um, okay, so then we have responsorial chanting, which is kind of like what we do for the prokemenons uh, during vespers, where one chanter will sing the first line, "Save me, O God, by Thy name," and then as a church we all respond and we sing the second line. Oh, we we repeat that line. And then that in the early church, that probably would be done by a small choir. And they would sing those, those psalm verses that come after. In the whole church, we would sing, Save me, O God, by thy name. So it would work like that, so that the whole church was participating in it. Because again, the focus is on uh, unity and is on this common sending up our, uh, our voice to God. So. Uh, it was the task of all present to sing and to participate in song, to respond with one heart and one voice to the celebrant. And my professor in, college, in seminary would even tell us that the word for choir did not even appear until the 16th century. Uh, that's what he says. I don't know about that, but his, his focus or his main point is really that community participated in it was the community that um, praise God because we're here I mean because uh, why are we here you know what's yeah we're not just sitting down and we're not at a, a play we're participating so music never understood as some private personal uh, or devotional exercise so it was function was communal and unifying St. John Chrysostom says, one voice should always be heard in the church because it is one body. And uh, even, even in the early church, we see that everyone would even lift up their arms like the priest at certain parts because they, they were all one voice. And everyone, of course, like we said, sang the responses. And everyone brought gifts to the church. And everyone took communion. If you missed communion for three weeks, you'd be excommunicated. You're excommunicating yourself from the church. It was that much focus was on communion and unity in uh, the early church, about becoming one. Um, so yeah, that they may be one as we are one, Christ says. So it's all about communion. I mean, even in the liturgy today, before, during the um, epiclesis, the, when we ask the Holy Spirit to come down, we say, the Holy Spirit may come down upon us before we say anything else. So the focus is also on us becoming one, as us becoming the body uh, of Christ. 
upon us and upon these gifts here spread forth. So upon us and upon the gifts. So um, we see that the musical tradition comes from two different directions. There's the desert, which is the monastic setting, which is very much focused on meditation. And there's not much ceremony. So a soloist would pretty much intone psalms while other monks meditated and listened to the words. So not very much ceremony. Everything I just said about union and communion and unity, uh, not so much going on in, in the monastery in, in terms of their worship. So I guess it was just, it was, it was, just, it was very different in the monastery. So um, there were no litanies. There were no bowing of the heads. Um, the psalms were recited in, in order, kind of through the Psalter, which is different than we'll see in, um, in the city and in the cathedrals. So they would kind of just go through the psalms in order, through the Psalter. In the city, in the cathedrals, it's all about uh, community, as we were talking about, communion. So, and it, was all, it was, and it was all about participation participating in the life of the church and participating in these services. So the psalms and hymns were associated with the time of the day. In Vespers and Orthros, you see a lot of, um, I mean, we, and we still see them, we still have them today. In Orthros, we still have uh, those, er, those psalms that, uh, the six psalms we do in the morning, and they're really based on the time of the day because there's so much when you wake up in the morning you know it's just groggy help me God how this is like I'm stuck in the midst and of this life and just waking up is just not the most beautiful thing and you kind of even see that in the Psalms that it's just like crying out to God like help me just wake me up for the day and so we see this kind of waking up even going on in the six Psalms that we have here and then of course in Vespers we have oh glad some light as the evening comes, we remember that Christ is the light. And uh, we even, so we have these elements still today. And in the early church, this was really important because it helped form the framework for the day, the lens that we see the day. Because as Christians, we see the day a little differently than the pagans. As Christians, we know that the day is centered on Christ. We know that we wake up with Christ, we go to sleep with Christ. I mean, it's, Christ is in everything. And the center of our day is Christ. So when I say that the early that they participated in the services, that participation led to the way that they lived their life. It led to the way that they saw the day. You know, it wasn't just you come to church in the morning. No, you come to church and you this is how you view the morning. You come to church, this is how you view the nighttime. This is something that is so foundational for how they lived their life. So that's what was going on in, in the cathedrals. There was more ceremony. There was the lighting of the lamps. There was incense. There was processions. So there was more ceremony going on there. Um, and so of course, today, our goal is still to see the services as they were being seen back then, that it is how we are supposed to see the day. We are supposed to come with that same, uh, or come to the services with that same desire and zeal and realizing that we aren't just saying these prayers, but we're looking at these prayers and we're applying them to our life. And we are, so that even when we leave, 
you know, we see, we thank God for, as investors, we thank God for the day, that first psalm where we thank God for uh, all of his creation. We're going out and we're thanking God for all his creation, even when we're leaving. Even we're in the Orthro service. We have those six psalms at the beginning where we're kind of asking God to help us and guide us to start our day. Are we still doing that when we leave? We're still, you know, waking up and crying out to God and kind of, using God, helping, turning to him to, to wake up in the morning. Because, of course, we're not at Orthros every day, and we're not at Vespers every day, but we still take on um, the ideas here. So, um, gradually these two forms um, of worship get mixed together as, during iconoclasm, the, monk, the uh, monks from Constantinople, from the city, come to the desert, and those in the desert received some of what they were doing in Constantinople. And then when the monks returned to Constantinople, they take some aspects from the desert worship. And so there's pages and pages of history of how we get to what we have today. But these two forms kind of bond and come into one. And um, we have the services um, that we have today from these two different paths. Um, yeah. This time frame, where did the mixing kind of occur? I mean, okay. Iconoclasm kind of occurred over a long period of time. That, was that all during that time? Um, so. Probably mostly 7th and 8th. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking 7th and 8th centuries, although uh, at, kind of as as the monks come back to Constantinople, that stuff is still kind of uh, influence from the desert is still coming into the cathedral. And so it's still kind of forming, forming, forming. Um, I mean, until the, in the 12th century, that you kind of see a Vespers that is pretty much what, we, what we're doing today. So um, that much I can say. Um, and even in. Uh, but it's still, there's still different variations in different parts. So I think the great Megalonarian is going to work for Arnold and Cherubim. It's like, it's like an 8th century, 9th century. Uh, you know, I think that's when it kind of, you know, okay. to whoever finds the thing that tells us to say, sing this. You know. Gotcha, yeah. The, it is truly a meat part of it. Yeah. Because I think even more honorable than the Cherubim, that part was even in the, liter even in the services, even before that. Yeah. The thing, the, the hymn and the melody itself. Is the All right. OK, so, um, so even in the uh, fourth century here, we still don't see that much hymnography. So we see more music, but not so much hymnography um, in the early church. And this is, we'll talk about kind of hymnography and the beginning of hymnography in uh, our, next, uh, our next lecture. But uh, so quickly, here's some Vespers in the fourth century. We see um, in Jerusalem that it looked something like lighting of the lamps, psalms, entrance of the bishop, um, some more psalms, intercession and blessing, and then the dismissal, and then stations of the cross, which is not like the Catholics do, but it was more like the bishop uh, kind of coming in front of the cross, and they're singing some, 
singing something to the cross as the bishop is kind of venerating the cross. So that's kind of what it was like, but we don't know exactly. But this is from Algeria, uh, who you see here in the picture, who was probably a nun, and she was writing to her, uh, her sisters, and so she goes on this, sisters probably being her, uh, the other nuns in her convent, and she is on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and so she records what she sees in Jerusalem, and it's really a treasure because it uh, talks a lot about what the church in Jerusalem was doing. So we see this from Egeria. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's fourth century, what's going on in Jerusalem. It's kind of like a live look. She, I mean, she's just writing on. Yeah, Michelle. I don't think so. Father Philip, she, she's not a saint. She, no. Um, so then we see 8th century in Constantinople. Vespers could have looked like a doxology, singing, Blessed is the man, which we do today, Lord I call, Gladsome Light. So there is one hymn there, Gladsome Light, Vouchsafe, in St. Simeon's Prayer. So hymn-wise, the three kind of basic word, doxology, Gladsome Light, St. Simeon's Prayer. You don't see that much hymnography um, other than that. Um, Okay, last slide. So, yeah. Just, what language would this have been sung at the time? Um, so, I think in different places, probably you'd find different languages. In Constantinople, I'm guessing, Father, probably Greek. And in Jerusalem, that's a good question. I'm not sure. What do you, what do you think in Jerusalem? Greek? Okay. Okay. So last slide, just, this is kind of cool, just to give a uh, little bit later look about what the liturgy uh, looked like. And we have some excerpts from um, Hippolytus of Rome from Apostolic Tradition, which is actually the earliest anaphora uh, that we have. And so I like to read it because it's kind of cool to see that they were kind of saying similar things in 215 to what we do today. Um, so it says... Let him continue thus. We give, we give you thanks, O God, through your beloved child, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent us in the last days as Savior, Redeemer, and Messenger of your will. He is your word, inseparable from you, through whom you have created everything, and in whom you find your delight. You sent him from heaven into the womb of a virgin. He was conceived and became flesh. He manifested himself as your son, born of the Spirit and the Virgin. He did your will, and to win for you a holy people, he stretched out his hands in suffering to rescue from suffering those who believe in you. When he was about to surrender himself to voluntary suffering in order to destroy death, to break the devil's chains, to tread hell underfoot, to pour out his light upon the just, to establish the covenant and manifest the resurrection, he took bread, he gave you thanks, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. In like manner for the cup, he said, This is my blood which is poured out for you. When you do this, do it in memory of me. Remembering, therefore, your death and your resurrection, we offer you the bread and the wine. We thank you for having judged us worthy to stand before you and serve you. And we pray you to send your Holy Spirit on the offering of your holy church to bring together in unity all those who receive it. May they be filled with the Holy Spirit who strengthens their faith in the truth. May we be able thus to praise and glorify you through your child, Jesus Christ. So pray, I mean, that's, yeah.
pretty amazing. And so uh, still we don't see uh, too much <coughs> hymnography in here. And Hippolytus is not really writing too much about uh, what the choir is singing here, or if they're singing, or what they're doing. But we do get some of that in St. Cyril of Jerusalem in his fifth mystagogical catechesis on the Eucharist. Um, and I'll just read all of that quickly. So at that time, the choir, I mean, the choir is singing um, when the priest says, lift up your hearts, the choir is singing, we turn them to the Lord. And when the priest says, let us give thanks unto the Lord, which is, I mean, this is following right along with what we do in the liturgy, then the choir sings, that is right and just. And um, of course, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of Sabaoth, um, just like we sing. Um, and then when the priest says, um, the holy things are for the holy, we see again, one alone is holy, one alone is Lord Jesus Christ. So here, in mid-300s, we see that uh, the choir is beginning to sing um, the responses, which maybe they were doing in 215. But here in mid-300s, we already see that we're singing that same stuff that they were singing even in um, the 300s. So uh, pretty cool. And uh, so that's it for today. Next week, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the hymns, how they developed, where they came from, and we'll also talk a little bit about the development of uh, the Byzantine chant. And then from there we'll go on to Slavic and uh, that development there, and uh, that'll be it. So thank you all for coming, and God bless you, and we'll see you, God willing, this weekend. <laughs>